morning, everybody. Please, if you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Leviticus. It's very close to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, We are going to be looking today at Leviticus chapters 8 through 10. Last week, we did chapters 1 through 7, which kind of laid out these five different sacrifices and what they were for and, and when you would bring them. These chapters are now about those who offered the sacrifices. The sacrifices now are going to start happening. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll start at the end of Leviticus chapter 9, starting at verse 22. This is just after the first sacrifices have begun. And I'll read a little ways into chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, once again, we journey back thousands of years to a time and a place when you were operating very differently with your people than you are today. And yet, Lord, uh, through these thousands of years, you still speak to us. Uh, You are still working among your people. You are still drawing them to yourself. You are still pointing us to Jesus. We rejoice that we know so much more than the Israelites did. We can see so much more clearly what you were up to and who your son Jesus is and what he was coming to do. Help us as we look back uh, to see what you want us to see. Help us to come away humbled, uh, but also eager to serve you in the ways that you've called us to. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
there's a scene early on in the first uh, Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, this is a great scene. I pull it out for a sermon every couple years. You guys are due to hear about this scene again. This is the scene where Mr. Beaver uh, is talking to the children, and the children find out that this king figure, Aslan, he's the Christ figure in the books, of course. They find out that he's not a person, but he's a lion, and they're kind of surprised by that. Uh, one of the kids asks, when she hears that he's a lion, asks if he's safe, uh, because she says, I'm kind of nervous to meet a lion. And then Mr. Beaver says this, he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our passage this morning is getting at that very point, that God is good, but he's not safe. Last week, we said that the book of Leviticus, as strange and as foreign as it might seem to us today, is basically articulating one big problem, that human beings in their deathliness have alienated themselves from God so that they can no longer approach the living God as they were meant to do. God is not safe, is one of the big things that Leviticus is telling us. But even more than that, we said last week, as we looked at those sacrifices, that Leviticus points beyond the big problem to a bigger solution. That in his kindness, God has made a way for the estranged human family to come back home to him. And that the way that he does this is by rescuing us and cleansing us by accepting the blood of a blameless sacrifice in our place. And so Leviticus also teaches us that God is good. Leviticus 1 through 7 described the different sacrifices that he wanted the people to bring to him. And so now in chapters 8 through 10, uh, we are going to be hearing about how the sacrifices actually get offered, uh, how they start uh, happening. Uh, They are happening through those who offer them, who have a special job to offer them on behalf of the people. And so these three chapters are now about the priests. These were mediators. They were go-betweens. They were like the bridge between the glorious and perfect God in heaven and his sinful and broken people on earth. And so as we learn about the priests, the chapters here are showing us that God is good, but that he is not safe. So first in chapter 8, we see that God is good because he provides a mediator. God's good because he provides a mediator, a go-between. Look there, flip back to Leviticus chapter 8, look at verses 1 to 4. You once again hear, like we heard at the very beginning of Leviticus, you hear that God is speaking to Moses out of the tabernacle. He's speaking to Moses about how to operate it, how to get the services there started. Uh, Like we said last week, one of the big points here is that all of this is God's idea. Uh, Over and over in these three chapters, you hear about how God commanded this, and they did what God commanded. Uh, You are not reading about how humans come up with their own ways of reaching out to God. Uh, We are not reading about people who had a powerful experience of God and are now trying to describe what they felt or what was impressed upon them. The whole book of Leviticus, the whole Bible, is about God reaching out to sinful people because they cannot 
find their way to him. One of the big points of Leviticus is that we are totally helpless without God coming to us. We're totally helpless without God speaking to us. God tells Moses to get his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons and to officially designate them, to ordain them as priests with all of the Israelites gathered there around the tent watching what's going on. But the first thing that Moses has to do there in verse 6 is he has to give them a bath. He has to wash them. The point is that Aaron and his sons have to be cleansed if they are going to go into God's presence on behalf of the people. Uh, their special bath, it's not really about literally getting clean, although they you know, got a little bit clean with a bit of water. The point is that the bath is an outward sign of God's demand for moral and spiritual purity in his presence. Today, baptism gets at a lot of the same ideas. After giving them this special bath with the special uh, bathtub that they have there at the tabernacle, Moses then is supposed to dress Aaron and dress his sons in their special uniforms. Uh, Their uniforms have all these special symbolic meanings. Uh, We talked about this a couple years ago. You can go back and listen to the sermon I gave on Exodus 28 and 29 where Moses was told, here's all their special clothes they're supposed to wear. And then after getting them dressed, Moses is supposed to take a special oil and anoint them with it, smear it on their heads. Uh, In the Bible, not just priests, but also prophets and kings were anointed with oil to show uh, in a tangible way that they were set aside for God's purposes, for God's special work. In this case, the priests have a special work of going between God and his people. And so now in chapter 8, verse 14, they've gotten ready, and now we hear about some of the offerings that we heard about last week, some of these sacrifices. Uh, There's a pattern to them. If you have your cheat sheet from last week, or I'm not sure if there's any left over from last week, I put this at the bottom of one side of the cheat sheet. There is a pattern, a typical pattern, that gets repeated in chapter 9 when these sacrifices are offered for the people. Uh, And then that pattern is repeated all over the Old Testament. Um, Even in our worship services today and through the history of the church, there's a, a, a loose correlation with this same pattern in terms of how you approach God and why we do certain things in the order we do them. The first part of that typical pattern of worship is Moses offering a sin, or maybe another way to translate that is a purification offering. The first step is the sin slash purification offering. In this case, he's doing it on behalf of the priests. The priests can't do it yet themselves. Moses has to be the priest first, so to speak. Uh, You offer this sacrifice, the priests need the sacrifice, because they too are sinners. They have been polluted by their own sin. This is, remember, this is the sacrifice that cleans you. This is the sacrifice that disinfects you uh, by innocent sacrificial blood. The priests need that for themselves as the first step in beginning their special job. They need to be disinfected from their sin if they are going to safely enter into and enjoy God's blessed living presence. The next step in the typical pattern, verse 18, Moses offers the burnt offering uh, or the ascension offering. This is the one uh, where you burn up the whole animal. It's the only one where nobody gets to eat any of it. Uh, And it emphasizes not only being rescued from the danger of sin, uh, but it also emphasizes that we belong entirely to God. That's why you burn up the whole thing and it gets uh, transformed into smoke that goes into God's presence. And so now that the priests have been purified, step one, Uh, they are now also, step two, they are entirely consecrated. They are set aside for God's purposes. They totally belong to him. They belong to his realm. They belong to his purposes. Uh, 
But then verse 22, the third and the final step in this pattern is the ordination offering. This is a special form of the peace offering that we talked about last week. Uh, We can translate this also as the fellowship offering. Uh, It's got the same basic idea here for the ordination as it does normally. It's a celebration. It's a sacrifice, a voluntary one, uh, where you, when you bring it, you get to eat some of it. God eats, so to speak. God eats some uh, on the altar. And then you eat some. You get to have a party with God and your friends and your family. The point of it is that you're showing that it's joyful. It's a good thing to be in a loving relationship with God and with his people. And like we said last week, in many ways, this is the point of the whole thing. This is where the whole system often terminates, uh, to enjoy God's blessing in his presence with his people. Uh, But this one here is special because it's for ordaining priests into their unique role. And so it also has this special bit where Moses takes some of the blood and he puts a little bit on the right earlobe, a little bit on the right thumb, and a little bit on the right big toe. It's a symbolic way of showing that the priest, his whole being, his whole body, his whole soul, the whole thing is now clean before God. The whole thing is set aside for God's service. The whole priest is in fellowship with God. And so you can see there in chapter 8, you have this specific trajectory. First, you have to be purified of your own sin. Second, you have to be transferred over into God's realm for God's service. And then third, the whole point of everything is so that you can enjoy fellowship with God, so that you can have a relationship with him. God is good because he provides a mediator. But then chapter 9, God is also good because he actually meets with his people through his mediator. The whole point of having mediators is so that God can meet his people. This is the second reason why God is good. So chapter 9, Moses has now sacrificed on behalf of the priests. And so now after seven days of waiting around in the tent, the priests are ready to do the sacrifices themselves. They're ready to offer them on behalf of the people. It follows this same three-step progression from purification through consecration into fellowship. You can see in chapter 9, verse 4, that the goal, the end point of it all, is God meeting with his people. God says, perform these sacrifices in this specific order, quote, for today the Lord will appear to you. Uh, verse 6, chapter 9, you see the same thing. Um, everybody gather around, everybody watch what's happening. Uh, quote, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded you to do. Why? So that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. God's commands are good for us, even when they seem strange or obscure. God's commands are good for us because they are the means to the end of getting to enjoy and commune with him. So then verse 8, uh, remember we're a week later now. The priests kind of start over for themselves. They, they offer their own purification offering. Then they offer their own ascension offering again a week later. And it's a reminder, once again, you're being reminded twice in two chapters, you're being reminded that even these wonderful priests with their really fancy costumes and and, uh, uniforms, uh, even though they have this really spectacular, important role, that even they, just like pastors and church leaders today, that even they are sinners in need of God's grace. They also need to be purified. They also need to be set aside for God. But there's a bit of a dark joke here, maybe, uh, that really underscores the point. Uh, God, at this point in chapter 9, when Aaron has to offer again another 
purification offering, God specifically says that Aaron is supposed to offer a calf. Now, this was not normal. Normally, they would offer an adult bull. But in this case, God says, hey, Aaron, I'd like you to offer me a calf. It's probably an echo of Aaron's own personal involvement in building the golden calf idol at the foot of Mount Sinai, this horrible event at the end of Exodus that threatened to throw God's entire relationship with his people uh, into the trash bin. Aaron himself was very involved in that. Aaron helped it come along. He offered one of the lamest excuses in all of the Bible. Uh, Moses says, what did you do? And he says, well, I don't know. I threw some gold in the fire. And he literally says, out came the calf. I don't know. <laughs> and so God now says to him, uh, hey, Aaron, when you are starting your ministry, I'd like you to offer one of those calves. I'd like you to offer a calf. I think it's God underscoring his love and his grace, even for a great failure like Aaron. Then and now, God does great things through great sinners. He forgives them, and he changes them. He gives them a new start. Think of Peter. Uh, after he betrayed and denied Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus goes back and restores him. It's amazing. God works through people like Peter, through Aaron, through you and me. So after the priests offer their own sin and burnt offerings, now they're really ready to offer on behalf of the people. They offer the same offerings in the same order for the whole people of Israel. Just like the priests, God's chosen and beloved people need to be cleansed. They need to be consecrated. They need to be set aside for a new purpose. Uh, and then, of course, verse 18, the point of it all, the priests offer peace offerings. They offer fellowship offerings for the people. And everybody gets to have a big party. Everyone gets to have a barbecue. Uh, God's people, just like the priests, are made to enjoy the blessing of being in relationship with God. And so that's why verse 22 is such a climax. This is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible because this is now the very beginning of the tabernacle slash eventually it will become a physical building, a temple. This is the beginning of the whole thing starting to work. This is God meeting with his people on earth for the first time. Aaron lifts his hands towards the people. This is the posture of giving to them, of offering them prayers. Uh, he prays for God's blessing upon them, it says. And then he and Moses, for the first time, actually go into the tent, and then they come out, and then once again, we're told, they bless the people. They stand there again, and they pray for them. They offer God's blessing upon them. And so you see the repetition. It's all about blessing. The priests are there to bring God's joy and God's goodness upon his people. God is there to care for his people. It's all about people enjoying God's liveliness in spite of their deathliness. And so that's the whole dynamic behind God now appearing to the people. Verse 23 says, The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Of course, the word glory... Uh, it, Originally, it had to do with this Hebrew word for heaviness, for weightiness, but it has this meaning now of splendor and beauty and majesty and brilliance, something that's shining really bright. Now, think about, um, in terms of things that we look at, think about all the time that we spend gazing upon such little fleeting things on our phones. Uh, maybe if there is a particularly glorious sunset, you pull yourself away from your phone for a little bit and you look at it and you say, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's interesting. 
Uh, but even then, even if, let's say, you know, we have great sunsets here in central Texas, even on a day when we have a really amazing sunset, uh, even when you've seen the most sublime painting you've ever seen, uh, think about when you got married on your wedding day and you saw your spouse for the first time, you took your breath away. All those things, as glorious and as beautiful as they were and they are, we need to understand that none of them compares with the beauty of God himself. We need to understand that all earthly splendors are mere trickles flowing downstream from God himself. We were made to gaze upon his glory. It's what the Bible promises that we will do through all of eternity if we have already in this life begun to see the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that's what Israel got to do here in chapter 9 of Leviticus. It's what all the sacrifices were there for, so that the people could meet God, so that they could see the beauty of God. People see this glorious vision of God, something to do with fire coming out of the smoke or something, it doesn't exactly say, but they see this glorious vision of God uh, as fire now leaps out of his presence to devour these hunks of meat on top of the altar. And so, of course, it says that when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Uh, When you meet God, you don't shrug. The people are amazed. They are literally awestruck. Because God meets with his people through his mediator, he's good. There's nothing better than seeing God. But Leviticus is also teaching us, besides the fact that God is good, it's also teaching us that God is not safe. God is not safe. That's chapter 10. Uh, What should have been and what was one of the greatest days in the history of God's dealings with humanity, this is supposed to be one of the greatest days in the history of the entire universe, now takes a sickening and horrifying turn. Look at verses 1 to 3. This is the same day. The people have just seen God. They've all just had this amazing experience. They've gone all the way through the whole sacrificial steps. But now we read that Nadab... And Abihu, Aaron's two oldest sons, they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. These two priests decided that they wanted to have their own experience of God. They decided that they wanted to help God's people meet with God in a new way, in their own way. They were just purified and consecrated by these sacrifices, weren't they? They've got these special clothes and this special roll and this special oil, don't they? They have good intentions, don't they? It's probably safe. It's not. It's not safe. Just like fire has just come out of God's presence to consume the meat on the altar, so now we hear that fire comes out of God's presence to consume them. It's horrifying. It's not entirely clear what exactly they did wrong, what it means that their fire was unauthorized, 
But because of how this story is brought up later in the book of Leviticus, right before we hear about the Day of Atonement, which is the one day of year that the priests would go into the very middle of the tabernacle, what they do here probably has something to do with them wanting to barge into that central room in the tabernacle. Something to do with them wanting to barge into the Holy of Holies. This is the most restricted part of the whole complex. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. Verse 1 tells us that they did something wrong with this special incense that was supposed to be used on that one day a year when the high priest would go into that little room in the middle of the tabernacle to kind of cover up God's presence so that he wouldn't be consumed by it. It's probably, what's going on here, probably these two guys decided that they were going to go in with their incense and they were going to meet with God. They were going to see Him. They were going to have some more of what they just experienced. Uh, It might have been because they were drunk. In a little while, uh, God will specifically tell Aaron, no drinking on the job. The point is this. While it is true that God is amazingly merciful, that's the big point, bold, italic, underlined point of Leviticus. God is amazingly merciful. While that's true, at the same time, we cannot presume upon His mercy. We cannot presume. Uh, We can't say with Nadab and Abihu, God will forgive me. That is His job. We cannot say to God, my heart was in the right place. We cannot say to God, well, nobody is perfect. Uh, I had to find out for myself. I had a bad upbringing. It made me do it. I was just living my truth. We know that we should not allow predators and abusers and war criminals to pull these kinds of excuses today before a human judge. How much less should we expect to be able to make these excuses before a divine judge who knows everything perfectly? who is perfectly beautiful and righteous himself. God is the source of all life. This is God's creation. And so we are under his law. We are merely creatures. And we're sinful ones at that. We're not God. And so we cannot live as if we were little gods and goddesses ruling over our own little kingdoms. Especially, like in Nadab and Abihu's case, especially when you are supposed to be leading God's people. Especially when you're supposed to be mediating between them and God. There is a much higher standard for the priests. Back then, just like today, there is a much higher standard for those who teach the Bible. The New Testament repeatedly says this over and over again. Uh, In a similar way, but to a lesser extent, there is a higher standard for those today who claim the name of Christ than for those who don't. The Apostle Peter says in one of his letters that God's judgment will begin with the church. God will start cleaning house here before he moves out into the world. And so God says to Aaron in verse 3, "...among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified." If God were allowed to allow the priests to do whatever they wanted, whenever they felt like it, if God were to allow his people to do whatever they felt, whenever they wanted, it would show that God is really nothing special. 
that God is not particularly concerned by his creatures destroying themselves or each other. And so part of the point of Leviticus is to remind us that God has given us limits. God has given us limits. And so if we are to enjoy the kind of life and blessing that we and this world were made for, those limits must be respected. And of course, one of the biggest limits of all is that death cannot be in the presence of life. This is one of the big themes that ties together a lot of the strange to us rules in Leviticus. Life destroys death. Just like when you turn on the light, light destroys darkness. That is why, according to Leviticus, it is so important to have innocent sacrificial blood as the symbolic bearer of life to shield you and clean you. And so verse 4, there's this huge dilemma now. One of the biggest limits of all is no death in the presence of life. And so now there's this big dilemma. God has killed Nadab and Abihu for their presumptuous arrogance, but now their smoldering corpses are literally right in the middle of the tabernacle, the holiest place on earth, and there are smoking dead bodies there. Something unclean is in the presence of the clean. And so Moses has their cousins carefully remove their bodies from the tabernacle, uh, not just take them right outside the gate among all the people, but Moses says, keep going. Take them all the way outside, way beyond where any Israelites are camping. Throw them out into the wilderness. Moses even tells Aaron, he tells his two remaining sons, he says, don't do any mourning rites. Do not express grief over the fact that that God has killed your two sons. Can you imagine? These are Aaron's two oldest sons. He taught them to walk. He remembers when they learned how to speak. He taught them to read. And now God has killed them, and God says, no mourning. What a horrible turn to a wonderful day. This doesn't mean that they can't be sad, but it means that because of their special role and because of the horror of what has just happened, Aaron and his sons have to be particularly careful. They have to be particularly careful that they demonstrate that they are entirely on God's side in this matter. That they are not shaking their fists at him in anger for what he's done. Saying, you're too harsh, how could you do this? God says, be really careful that you show the people whose side you're on. It's the principle, and Jesus says something like this in the New Testament. He says, you have to love me so much that your love for your own family will look like hatred in comparison. Our loyalty and our love for God must override even our loyalty and our love for our own biological family. In verses 8 through 11, God now speaks directly to Aaron for the first time. God reminds him that he and the other priests must diligently respect the limits that God has placed upon us. He says, I want you to honor my demand for holiness among my people, and especially among my people's leaders. One of the greatest objections to Christianity today is that so many people who claim the name of Jesus, uh, particularly, this is particularly a problem when leaders do this, so many Christians who claim the name of Jesus are such hypocrites. 
This is a really good objection to Christianity. Why would anybody want anything to do with Jesus or his church if those who claim to follow him look just like everybody around them or worse? It's horrible. And so God is making this point to Aaron. He says, you and my people are special because I'm special. And I want you to show that with your entire lives. That's the main point of the next six chapters of Leviticus, all these rules about clean and unclean and food and clothes and farming and all these things. We'll talk about that next week. The whole point of this episode of chapter 10 is it's a very sober reminder that God is not safe. But it ends with another reminder, in case we forget, it ends with another reminder that God is good. It starts with God is good, God is good, God is good, God's not safe, and then it ends with God's still good. Uh, In verses 12 and following, chapter 10, we realize that Moses and Aaron have been reading the handbook differently, that they have different ideas about what should have happened with one of the sacrifices. It's kind of a a bit of a weird story. Uh, They're they're disagreeing about whether or not the priests were supposed to eat part of one of the sacrifices. Technically, Moses is right. Uh, The priests should have eaten part of the people's purification offering. Uh, but they didn't do it. And so Moses comes along to check on how things are going now that they've gotten rid of the dead bodies. He realizes that they didn't eat this part that they were supposed to eat. And he says, whoa, whoa, Aaron, are you serious? Did you see what just happened? Don't you see how careful we have to be to do exactly what God says? What are you thinking? You screwed up. And it's true. They should have eaten it. But they didn't do it, maybe because they were really afraid because of what just happened. Uh, Or maybe because they figured that by themselves participating in some level in the sin of the sons, maybe the priests were the ones who did it, maybe they think, well, okay, now we're kind of back to square one where we aren't allowed to eat the meat that gets offered to purify ourselves. It's not totally clear why they didn't do it. But in either, either way, the point is that unlike his sons, Aaron was trying to be really respectful toward God. Uh, Aaron was trying to do what God wanted, And so the chapter ends with Moses, kind of as God's spokesman, it ends with Moses saying, oh, okay. And Moses goes along with it. The point, as obscure as that is, the point is that God graciously allows the priests to keep mediating between him and the people. It's kind of like a mini repetition of the golden calf thing in Exodus, where it looks like, wow, things are going to fall apart. God's going to ditch them. They've broken the covenant. And God says, no, I haven't broken it. I'm going to keep going with you guys. It's the same kind of point here. Uh, Even though the priests made a mistake, uh, even though they will continue to fail in many ways, uh, God says, it's okay. I will let you continue to serve me in this way. God is not safe. We can't presume upon his mercy, but he's always good. We see that most of all, in God providing for us a much better priest, not only a better priest than the foolish and arrogant Nadab and Abihu, but also in God providing for us a better priest than the weak and stumbling Aaron, who kind of made mistakes and didn't really know what to do a lot of the time. Uh, God's best priest, God's greatest priest, of course, is Jesus. Uh, Jesus had no speck of sin in him. He did not need, unlike Aaron and his sons, Jesus didn't need to offer any sin offerings on behalf of himself. He didn't need to be purified. He was already pure. Uh, He was already consecrated fully from the moment he was conceived to God's service. 
uh, on the cross, Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice once and for all on our behalf. Uh, Jesus cleansed us there. Jesus consecrated us there. Jesus brought us into fellowship with God there so that now we can enjoy the blessed vision of the glory of God in his face and through his word. Jesus brings us into God's presence like the priests were supposed to do for the people. We could never get there on our own. If we tried on our own, we'd end up like Nadab and Abihu. Let's end with these verses from Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Those promises are true because Jesus is a great and perfect high priest for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing a mediator for us in your goodness. You're not safe. We can't presume upon your mercy. We can't live however we feel like. But you offer a mediator for us so that even when we do sin, when we do fail, uh, you can continue to accept us and receive us. Keep us from presumption. Keep us from arrogance. Uh, Keep us from going through the motions uh, on the outside but being far from you in our hearts. Help us to draw close to you, Lord, by seeing in your son Jesus, your incredible generosity, your incredible goodness by providing him for us. We pray in his name. Amen.